Hi, I'm Tom Melville, and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places, and perspectives from beyond the big cities. Before we start, I wanted to thank you for supporting the podcast over the past year. This episode will bring us to the end of Season 1. A year ago, we wanted to make a program that showcased stories from across regional Australia because we weren't seeing these voices represented elsewhere in the format. A year later, we've received two awards and multiple nominations and think we've created something important, interesting and entertaining. We'll be taking a break to do some reporting and we'll come back with Season 2 in mid-September, kicking off with a very special multi-part story. Stay with us at the end of this episode to hear the trailer. Now we have a heartwarming story to share before we call time on season one. It's a story about small town camaraderie in a time when we're all feeling a bit isolated. All towns have their legends, local stories that you're never certain if they're true or not. Mudgee, a town a few hundred k's west of Newcastle, is no exception. It's among the oldest settlements west of the Great Divide. In the 1940s, Mudgee's main street was known for its Greek cafes, American-style diners operated by Greek migrants. Their opulent design featured chrome curves, etched glass, and luxurious booth seating. They were distinctive and became synonymous with Mudgee. There was the Royal Cafe, the Hollywood Cafe, and the Mudgee Cafe. They're no longer around, but stories linger. One legend stands above the rest. It's evolved and exaggerated over the years, but the meat of it stays the same. A boy was rescued, in the rain, by a brave cafe owner. Nick Zambulis writes for the Mudgee Guardian, and he brings us the story. After I first heard about Mudgee's Greek cafes, there was always one story that kept coming back, a little different every time. And I've always been desperate to find out what really happened. It's about a young boy who nearly drowns in the middle of a bustling Mudgee street, and the Greek cafe owner who saved his life. I was in Mudgee a few years ago and talking to a real estate agent who was my age, and he said to me, do you know your father saved a boy? And I said, yes, I know I was there. And then I met a woman at a gallery opening in Sydney. And she said, oh, do you know your father saved a boy? And I said, yes, I do. And then she told me this incredible story, which made my father sound like Iron Man or something, you know, jumping off awnings and jumping onto cars and things to save this boy's life. And I said, uh, sorry, that isn't how it happened at all. And she said, well, this is the story I grew up with and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story that I heard originally that he was up on the second story of a building or something and he jumped over the balcony onto the roof yeah. of a car from the car, jumped to the street right. and sprinted off down the street. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that story came from. New Year's Day, 1959. Gorgeous blue sky and a shining sun. Kids were out playing at Mudgy Swimming Pool and running free in the streets. Jeff Mavramatis, a 10-year-old boy, was standing next to his younger sister Anne and their dad Con outside their cafe on Church Street, the Mudgy Cafe. It was the early afternoon and they were waiting for a huge burst of rain over the town. People called them cloud bursts and they're pretty common in Mudgy. On that day, people were standing in the streets, waiting for the clouds to pop like water balloons. Eventually the rain came and the town began to flood. We were all fascinated with standing out on the gutter. On, on the step of the shop was the water on the footpath over the gutter, up onto the road. It was almost like a sh- complete sheet of water. You could just see the centre of the road and that was all. Then everything else disappeared. That's Jeff. He's 72 years old now and he lives in New Zealand, just outside Christchurch. 
and the flooding was amazing. So we're all standing out on the front step of the shop in Church Street and just looking around, just couldn't believe how much rain was coming down. Jeff and Anne looked across the street and as they did, they saw a boy vanish into the flood water. He stepped into it and the flow of water was just so strong, he just instantly disappeared, completely oh disappeared. Gosh. The story of how a young boy nearly drowned on Church Street is well known, but his identity has always been a mystery. Just ask Lynn Robinson from the Mudgee Historical Society. Well, in our days, the gutters would be like, not like where they're curbed off nowadays, and had a big um, sort of a drain, and um, he went into it when there was torrential rain, and you could easily get swept away, and apparently this is what happened. Jeff has often wondered about the boy his father saved. As he collected family history, it's a piece of the puzzle that's always been missing. I searched through old microfilm editions of the Mudgy Guardian in the library's archives, and on the front page of the 1959 January 3rd edition, there's an article. It refers to a young Ian Marsh, just six years old at the time. I couldn't find an Ian Marsh in Mudgy's phone book. Google Ian Marsh, and there's a lot of results. A lot. But then I found a short blog published in 2011 on the Goldburn Men's Shed website. It was about an Ian Marsh from Mudgee. He was the secretary of the men's shed. Hello. I'd found him. You can hear me, Nick. Lovely. Pleased to meet you. Ian had been standing at the front of the Catholic church with his older sister and her friend. They had just finished up at the pool. It had been a hot and clammy day and the humidity finally broke with the downpour. Ian was the tallest of the three kids. He stood impatiently in the rain, holding his towel. But he quickly got bored waiting in the rain and decided he would head home. I moved to go across the road and, of course, didn't see where the footpath ended and the gutter started. It just went from under me and, of course, I've just gone down. Ian has wondered for the past 60 years how to find Con's family and thank them. I organised a video call so they could meet for the first time. Ian in Goldburn, Jeff in New Zealand. I feel so privileged that I got to put them in touch. It was, it was a, I remember it was, the shop was closed, so it was, it was a holiday. I think it was New Year's Day. Then, I don't know why, but we just looked across and then saw you do your, your diving act into the gutter. And then I saw my old man just take off like a rocket down the street. It was a hell of a sprint. I didn't believe anyone could move that quickly. But it was the, um, the speed he took off. He didn't sort of hesitate. Ian was sucked into an open drain, underground. A surging torrent carried him along 80 metres in a matter of seconds. Con sprinted down the street and stopped for a moment at a gutter outside the old picture theatre. Anne remembers her father taking off with lightning speed. Her dad just took off and stepped into the gutter where he could see the towel and pulled him out of the water down at the pub, Lawson pub, because there was a weir, the river's got a weir, and he was just worried that once he got into the river, he was gone. So he couldn't see him. And uh, now the gutters are covered over in Mudgee, but they're very, very deep because when we had a downpour, we had a downpour. Con positioned himself over another drain and watched for signs of the boy. He saw a towel floating in the rush of water. He grabbed it, yanking it up, along with the young boy clinging to it. Jeff and Ian again. Yeah, well, I've often thought that if it wasn't for that towel, you wouldn't be there. When I left the home to go to the bars, my mum told me it's a new towel there. Don't lose it. 
I've held on to it for dear life. And I held on to going down the drain in the clip and he said he's seen the towel and the young fella attached to it. <laughs> the other person that was on the step with us was my uncle. He was a doctor. So when Dad got you out and he finally turned up, the doctor, he was nowhere near as fast off the mark or down the street, um, you, you had medical assistance right there and then. Well, Dr Carter was the family doctor. Mum was a Saturday afternoon after the storm sort of thing. She was doing the ironing out on the little room off the, the veranda, like the breakfast room, as they called it back then, uh, at the end of the veranda that went around the house. And uh, he seen this ambulance backing up, up the driveway and Dr Carter followed the ambulance. He told me, they told Mum or something, he's got a couple of scratches, get him to bed and when he's ready, throw him back in the pool huh. so I wouldn't be scared of water sort of things. <laughs> it was an eventful day. <laughs> News of the impressive feat reached far and wide. Con was called a hero in papers like the Sydney Morning Herald. It was a huge event for the small town of Mudgee. Six weeks later, Con was bringing a car back from Sydney to sell. He was at the end of a long drive, finally coming into Mudgee, when a truck came around on the wrong side of the road. Apparently, uh, he moved his car to get round it, and then they corrected, so they ended up hitting head on, and, and he got thrown out. And it was wet, and the driver was very, very young. So it was, yeah, it was just horrific. Your dad wasn't all that old either, so terrible. I still thank your father every day when I was shaved. I always say it's hard to explain or I guess the the, um, the sentence doesn't work well in this case, but a door opens and another one closes sort of thing and it's the, when it's when it's that close to home, it, uh, you know, it's uh, I start to get a little bit emotional now when I think about what your father did and the tragic uh, circumstances after it. Oh, you got me tearing up a bit, Ian. <laughs> Here's Anne again. People in those days were church-going and so they believed in a loving God. So to have this young man who saved a boy's life and then to be killed so soon after just didn't make sense to people, didn't make sense to anybody. Yeah. And so it had a big effect on the whole town. As he grew up, Ian's mother often told him that while he was saved, another life was taken. It's something that will be with you all the time and you you just you just can't forget it. You can't you can't take it, and you don't want to take them, take that away from you. You want to have that memory and uh, just have a silent prayer or something for for someone that uh, has done that selfish act. Just so much indebted to uh, to Jeff and the family. For speaking, you can never repay that. You know, both of you in it. Like I know, Ian, you mentioned your parents split up and. I guess you had to move away from your father. Is that right? And, and Jeff, you grew up without a father as well. Also another bit of, I guess, parallel lines. Yeah. We're just wonderful that the, that the mothers are the, the strong part of the family and uh, do everything they can to uh, do the right thing. After Jeff and Ian's families moved away, they had lost contact with their home and with that, a chance at learning more about the key events that shaped their childhoods but they never stopped trying. The other thing, Nick, is that you know, running a cafe in those days was a huge amount of time. So he would be up 6 o'clock in the morning and lighting the fire because it was a big 
you know, solid fuel stove that all the cooking cafe was done on. And he'd be working through to sort of 11 o'clock at night, uh, six days a week. And then Sunday sort of doing maintenance or going down to see his parents in Sydney. So a lot of time working. And so, you know, I was trying to piece together, you know, all the various bits and pieces because memory's not that great. There's a few things you remember. And this one obviously stood out as something, you know, really, you know, beacon in terms of his life. And so that's why I was keen. And that's why I put that notice in the Mudgy Guardian just to sort of see, you know, what had happened, you know, where it it ended up and and, um, just sort of, you know, what what were the consequences? I didn't know how this was going to go. It's been better than I expected and it's been wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I was a bit nervous too, Ian. I didn't know what what we we're going to say to each other. <laughs> you didn't know if I had three ears or something. <laughs> now, stay healthy, mate, and all the best to your mum and, and Ian. Yeah, I will. Jeff Mavramatis and Ian Marsh there, speaking for the first time since the rescue that's fed legends in Mudgee for 60 years. That brings us to the end of Season 1 of Voice of Real Australia. But before I go, a few weeks ago, before this lockdown, I drove out west to outback New South Wales. I followed the Darling River, meeting with the communities along it. Their lives revolve around the health of this river, and it seems to be dying. They told me that when the river is up, like it is now, the people are up. But when it's down, things get really bad. I fell in love with the Darling while on holiday. The Australian outback is so special, so wild and beautiful and dangerous, it feels like a different universe. If you talk to enough people at the local pubs, you start to get a sense that something's really wrong here. Season 2 of Voice of Real Australia will start with the miniseries Forgotten River, where you'll meet the people caught in the middle of outback water politics. Until then, here's the trailer. It's hard to see in the photos, we didn't have drones and that then. But yeah, that was I reckon there's 500,000 dead from, from here, about a k and a half through here of fish. The Darling River wends its way through 1,500 kilometres of Australian outback. To the Barkindji people of far western New South Wales, the river channel marks the course of the Nachi, the rainbow serpent. It has sustained cultures and communities for thousands of years. I grew up fishing and swimming and camping along this river, and um, for me not to be able to do that with my kids is like a passion that's, that's gone away. But the river is in danger and the people along its course face an uncertain future. In a three-part series, Voice of Real Australia takes you up the Darling River, the Forgotten River, and introduces you to the people who are fighting for its life. It just gets in your bones and you just want to look after it. It's um, it's interesting. Um, I don't think people along many of the rivers have actually got to the point where they've nearly felt like it's a generation who's annihilated a river system. You can listen to Forgotten River here or find the dedicated Forgotten River podcast wherever you listen. And that's it for this season of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't taken part in our listener survey yet, please do. The link is in our show notes. 
Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and we'll be back in a month. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voice of real Australia. You can follow me on Twitter at Tom Melville 124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. Ethan Hamilton is our intern, and we'll see you in a month. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.